Welcome to the Agriculture Revolution podcast, where you will explore the world of agriculture through the lens of entrepreneurship and innovation. By interviewing experts in a diverse set of careers, this podcast provides an interdisciplinary and comprehensive insight into some of the most prominent and pressing developments in agriculture. Whether you're interested in food security, sustainability, AI technology, or just interested in learning more about agriculture, this is the show for you. And now your host, Julian Jensen Lim. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Agriculture Revolution podcast. My name is Julian Jensen Lim, and today on the show, we'll be discussing urban agriculture and policymaking with Stacy Flanagan, the Director of Health and Human Services for Jersey City. Stacy has had an extensive and impressive career providing health services, health equality, and nutrition education to communities all around. She has also played a key and leading role in many innovative policies in Jersey City. It is an honor to have you on the show today. And would you like to introduce yourself a little bit more? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Like you said, I'm the Director of Health and Human Services for the City of Jersey City. Since I was, uh, my years as a rising senior um, in Northern New Jersey, very involved in um, working along the food gap. In fact, I was a volunteer um, in Jersey City when I was a senior in high school at the York Street Project. So um, I feel that my life has come full circle and there I worked with women, infant and children. And then um, shortly before taking this job in the mayor's office, uh, I was the director for Neighborhood WIC in New York City, which um, you know spans the food system and government food um, policy. So I worked very closely around uh, government food policies uh, for most of my career. I think that's awesome that you're still serving the same city you did back in high school. So being the director of Health and Human Services, you've pioneered and implemented many initiatives and policies regarding urban agriculture and health food education. So what are some of the factors you consider when making a public policy decision? How do you incorporate academic research, scientific data, and community needs into policymaking? Uh, well, that's a really good question because all three of those things are the most important components of policymaking. And I'll, I'd like to use an example, a food example, um, that when we decided that we were gonna make some changes to the farmer's market policies in Jersey City, we first did our academic research. We researched what was going on across the country, what were some of the policies that were being implemented in large cities like New York and Seattle, Portland, and then small communities. We often look at our city a little bit similar to the size of, say, um, Providence, Rhode Island, um, and the diversity and progressiveness of a place like Austin, Texas. So we, we take a look across the fields to see what's, what's happening. We then take all that research um, and then we do some outreach to the community. So what we did in this particular situation with the farmer's market, we created a survey to all the parks and farmer's market interested individuals. So people would reach out to the health department saying they were interested in a farmer's market. And then we also surveyed some of the council at the time. Then we took that data alongside the academic data, we put that together, and then we hosted a meeting. So we hosted two stakeholder meetings, and we invited people from the general public along with others just to get a sense of like what they felt was important. 
And from there, um, you know, so we had a little bit of community input, a little bit of the data from academia, and then data from the community leadership that were going to be running the farmer's market. And we put together a plan that we felt was fair and equitable to the people that were running the program. So they had enough leeway to be unique in their service. So if one farmer's market wanted food trucks, it wasn't necessarily that other farmer's market needed food trucks, but we wanted to make sure the farm was kept in the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. So we required 55% of all of the um, sales be farm produce and or non-taxable um, items that you can buy with your food stamps or your WIC food checks, which to us meant that there would be greater equity in the food system. Do you mind going a little bit more in depth with what you did during the farmers markets and how you collected that data? Right. So uh, the farmers markets, uh, you know, they've been around for nearly 40 years. Uh, the first one in New York City, Union Square. Um, and we're lucky to still have some of those leaders still alive and, and technical assistance providers to our work. Um, so there's a lot of research um, be, behind the farmers market that's done by organizations like um, Wholesome Wave or the USDA looking at expansion of farmers markets. Um, and there's a lot of peer-reviewed journals in the Journal for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior um, that we looked at uh, related to this. So when we made changes to the city's farmer's market, um, we actually created the ordinance to say that we would no longer charge markets a fee for hosting mm -hmm. if their market was in a food desert. Turns out all of Jersey City is a food desert. So right off the bat, check. Um, no farmer's market um, is required a fee for hosting. So we often have a sponsored agency. In the past, you needed to jump through many hoops, go through cultural affairs for an event permit, go through the parks for a park permit, then come to health for a health permit. So we decided to reduce that park permission, especially if you were a park-related organization, and we created the ability to reduce that so that we can move forward. The second piece was we wanted to make sure every market had the ability to serve people with low or moderate income so that every market was required to have at least one farmer that would accept food stamps, SNAP, the electronic benefit transfer, and the WIC cash value voucher, which is distributed through a different area of the USDA. So once you had those two abilities, we would then provide other tools, marketing tools or um, small grants, if you were to double the dollars for someone that was taking their food stamps to the market. So we have some markets that went, you know, did a really great job and some markets that no longer exist because they couldn't find a farmer that would accept those um, you know, forms of vouchers. Uh, from the state or the federal government. I think that's awesome how you first of all reduced the regulation for farmers markets to operate, but then you also made it to where it was accessible to everybody. Um, there was a study I was reading, and I'll, I'll just briefly summarize it, but it concluded that you, know, you can put a farmers market or a grocery store in a certain area, but that won't necessarily drive demand. And I think it's, it's awesome how these, you, know, you just mentioned these programs incentivize that demand. Yeah. So relating to that, 
Food insecurity and food deserts are a few issues that are often associated with urban environments and cities. And you mentioned all of Jersey City is a food desert. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing urban environments from an agriculture perspective, and how do you plan on overcoming it? Can you give me any examples? Right. So farmers markets, one example. The second example is our Adopt-A-Lot program. Um, we actually uh, adopt out um, lots around the city where people can grow food. And every one of those lots should have a relationship with a local food pantry so that they can actually donate some of their um, excess. In addition to that, um, we've got a lot of COVID activity happening around the food system that we've been really um, interested in and related to, uh, which is we pick up extra food from every farmer's market every day of the week right now, and we distribute them to families who are impacted by COVID. So we're distributing somewhere between 140, 200 bags of produce across the city right now. Uh, in addition to that, we work with Aero Farms in two ways. Right now, Aero Farms is providing extra greens for families that are impacted by COVID as we're waiting to build out our next few locations uh, across the city so we can start growing our own food. Nice. So what issues do you think are underlying these urban agriculture problems? Is it distribution channels or something like affordability? So I think there's many things. Um, in the city of Jersey City, we have so much wonderful diversity that we have a really comprehensive corner store initiative. So bodegas um, that serve every population, right? And they're on, you know, every few blocks, there's a bodega. Not all bodegas, um, are licensed by the WIC program. So they don't all carry all the items you need to get WIC people coming into your bodega. Um, many of them are licensed to accept food stamps and we're really excited about those locations. Uh, and we are often trying to upgrade and support um, corner stores and becoming healthier. And so we think that's one area where we can do that work. Um, we also think that distribution is a major concern. Small stores can't carry enough of healthy items that um, need to be moved quickly, yeah. right? So produce coming through a store, coming off of a truck, um, you know, if you can't move that food fast enough, that food might spoil. So we need to have other mechanisms in place, which is why we started our Healthy Corner Store Initiative and we've been working to offer bodega bucks in the community to have them go into healthy stores and buy some of that healthy food so that we can build the demand so that the supply will keep coming in, right? So if nobody buys all the stuff and the bodega owner loses money, he's not gonna restock, right? One and done. But if we keep filling that demand by giving people bodega bucks to buy some healthier food options, um, working with the bodega owner to like show him how to make smoothies with the with the fruit and vegetables before they go bad um, so that he can still make money off of all of those things that he's invested in that's going to go a longer way distribution is certainly an issue um, we've seen and because of the work that I've done um, across New York New Jersey um, large trucks that park illegally get ticketed 
that increases the price of food. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because if you can't distribute it quickly and you know, you can't get it in quickly enough. Um, and then having portals where that food is available. So, um, you know, there's no real large food depot here in New Jersey because we're rich with small farms and agriculture, it becomes harder for someone to create a distribution channel. But there are some really exciting distribution channels that do come uh, back to Jersey City. And one of them that's really wonderful is Zone 7. If you haven't, they might be on your list for an interview in the future. They're doing really great work. Um, they supply some of our restaurants and some of our small boutique corner stores with food. In addition to that, the community supported agriculture programming across our city. So we have a lot of farmers that pack up boxes of food um, to support individuals. And um, that is really always helpful as well. So you mentioned various initiatives like the vertical farming with Aero Farms, the Adopt-A-Lot program, and the Healthiest Corner Store initiative. So with these programs in mind, what are some unexpected consequences that have occurred as a result of these various health-related initiatives? What underlying aspects of these programs do you think caused them to turn out the way they did? Well, let's say, um, you know, we'll start in alphabetical order. <laughs> Adopt-a-lots. Um, so the Adopt-a-lots was, was already in place before I got here. Um, the director of planning, in fact, um, Tanya Marion, had been working on this program before I even came to the city. So maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten years. Um, it's been around uh, and it really it came out of the division of planning because it was more about um, redesigning neighborhoods because of blight. So the unexpected consequences now we've got these wonderful, um, you know, adopt a lot in various communities. They've now added to their programming work like composting collection. Now they're getting too much compost. Um, <laughs> and we need to, you know, pay someone to haul some of it away. Um, others is, um, there's more and more people seeing this great work and they too want to adopt a lot, but we don't have many lots available in the neighborhoods where people are interested. So they have to travel further. So we've got positive and sort of some challenges to that. Um, Aero Farms, uh, is, is brand new. We're really excited about building these out. We're going to build up 10 farms across the city. Uh, we're going to have one, you know, at a public school. Uh, maybe, you know, we're looking at some nonprofits that do work in the food system, some of the city public buildings, housing authority sites. And um, so far, we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback. And the only, you know, issue is what, what happens next, right? Some people want more. Everyone wants one in their neighborhood. Um, so now we're getting, people are reaching out to us saying, I want to work on that. And I want to, you know, be a part of that. Um, and we don't, we don't have that programming of like volunteerism yet in, in the Aero Farms. So that's something, you know, we expect to see down the line. Uh, our, you know, farmer's market work, um, we saw that um, so many markets wanted to open in our community that the farmers were not interested in being at every market. So they can only work seven days a week. So if there's two markets on one day or three markets even on a Saturday here, 
it's really hard to get the, a farmer because they're really booked. So yeah. some unintended, you know, consequences of that. So when building engagement with these programs, do you find people's preferences maybe towards less nutritious foods to be a deterring factor? You know, everybody has um, those foods that they love, especially look on a day like today. Yeah. Um, so you're like, mm, I want to be like warm and, you know, you might have your favorite food. So what we try to do is not tell someone that something's bad for them, but that there are sometimes foods, right? Uh, and that there's, you know, um, there's so many different ways to train or teach or help someone change behavior. So healthier just means some days just putting less salt in your food, right? Because it's going to make you healthier. If you're making your favorite food and you use less oil or salt or butter, it's automatically going to be a little bit healthier. So if we keep walking down that path, um, using some of the academia of stages of change model, um, we can slowly work someone down that path. If someone's never had a green smoothie before, that's different. We bring our smoothie bike out. We'll show them this is something you can do. Don't have to have it every day. Just try it. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you didn't realize. Or some people that are not used to different kinds of greens. So like in my house growing up, we ate broccoli rob and Swiss chard. But in someone else's house, they might have eaten kale or mustards. Um, and someone else's house, you know, collards. So learning kind of where someone is um, in their interest of eating healthy and how to help them make some of their current foods healthier. And once we do that, then we can help them make those decisions to, to change their behavior. I've admired the educational component of these programs, like with Aero Farms and the Healthy Corner Store Initiative. You guys aren't just giving them the food, but you're also giving them, you know, the workshops and educational lessons to help change behavior and preferences. And, you know, we used to, um, and we now have our partners doing this work, um, take people right to the supermarket and train them how to shop better with our cooking matters at the store. And now our partners at Jersey City Medical Center or um, Greater Bergen Head Start are doing some of that work. Wow, I think that's awesome how um, that program is assisting people while they grocery shop. And I think it goes to show how important education is when implementing urban agriculture policy. So with Jersey City being an extremely innovative and progressive city in terms of policy and program development, I was wondering how you foster that kind of culture. How would you define innovation and policymaking? And how can you nurture that innovation within a community or amongst your colleagues? So I'm going to say, you know, innovation starts at the top. Um, so our mayor is visionary and is willing um, to, you know, get new ideas to the table and, you know, willing to back those ideas. Um, we had a really wonderful grant um, through Bloomberg Philanthropies in the beginning of the tenure of the mayor. And he was able to create a, an innovation team, appointed a chief innovation officer. And we still have an office of innovation that helps, you know, come up with great ideas, um, you know, work it out, see what policies need to be in place, talk to the community, get some feedback. And then when they've got it all tinkered, then a department might take it over to do the long-term sustainable 
programming around it. So composting right now. Composting is a big project out of innovation. They've got many ways to look at composting. We've got a composting bike. We've got a composting team that comes pick up uh, extra compost, but we've also been doing composting work at the farmer's market level in the Adopt-A-Lots. And the innovation team came and said, we've got bigger ideas. Let's tinker with some new ideas and see how this works in different communities. We're just going to put out more um, collection boxes and see if we can gather more uh, do more educational workshops so that people can be taking in their own backyard composting. Um, and so big picture ideas, you know, really start with the mayor's vision around um, innovation is the key to change in our community. And that there is a whole team of innovators um, that are working collaboratively with department directors like myself, make it easy to um, be able to do this work. So on this topic of innovation, in a United Nations report, it was projected by 2050 that 68% of the world's population, or 6.7 billion people, will reside in urban areas. In your opinion, what inventions or technology will play a key role in addressing urban food security for the future? So urban food security is going to really depend on us being resilient. Um, as a community. And so resiliency comes um, a lot with creating ways to, you know, grow our own food and improve our food system in and of itself. So um, looking at food waste in a different way, um, looking at the agencies that we're currently going to for food, especially with the change in our current, you know, restaurant culture, COVID, um, you know, green rooftops are going to be, you know, important to, you know, buildings that have large number of residents that they can get added, you know, nutrients from that. Aero farms absolutely plays a part. The adopt-a-lots are pieces to that puzzle, possibly future um, greenhouses in our city. We are talking actually on Thursday with, um, two different people, one, uh, you know, a, a group that's really interested in bringing an urban farm here and another, uh, a greenhouse farm. And so uh, I think other people are seeing exactly what, um, you know, the UN reports are, are sharing with us and the World Economic Forum partners that are ours um, are saying, build resiliency, um, look at consumerism, look at how we're consuming things, maybe that's where behavior change comes to place so that we are more accustomed to growing our own food in the future.